John Henderson, former bureau chief and editor. I do feel that I should do the not worthy bowing down, but he's just a writer with a mortgage. Um, John Henderson lovingly captures the post-war world of English football. He let, doesn't let the romance ever slide into sentimentality. That is John Crace, one of my favourite writers, talking about your journey in search of the soul of football when footballers were skint. Tell me about the taxi driver test. Well, I mean, one of the most striking things about writing this book was we knew, we knew they were skint because they only earned 20 quid a, a week. And people said, well, say to me, well, that's, that's a fair amount of money. But that was at a time when everybody, all working people were skint and 20 quid a week, you were, you were skint with the rest, rest of them. The point was you weren't getting the money you should have got for the entertainment you were providing. You know, you weren't getting, you were only getting a fiver when you played in front of 150 people at Hamden. But to go back to your question, so what struck me was not only were they skint then, but how skint they still are. One sort of, sort of had in mind that when you pulled up, in their, when you visited their houses, they would be living in something, uh, a roofless wreck, but they'd be living in a reasonably posh house. But very, very few of them were. But taxi drivers used to drop me off, and outside this very ordinary-looking house, and 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 I used to ask them because I knew most of them would be football fans. As, I, as we drove away, do you know who lives there? And the bloke said, "Sure. Why should I know?" And I said, "Well, you ought to, because he played for Manchester United in the FA Cup final." And they sort of what? <laughs> and it was just—it was just a litmus of of how skint they were then and how skint they are now that that particular gentleman was the manchester united guy who he played in the famous fa cup final after the munich air crash um oh i will try and find the name because you do give three pages of about 20 20 people yeah 25 20 coming up to 30 was it it no was it alex dawson yeah that's it who was that's 18 him. he was a busby babe but didn't travel uh, and he he remembers uh, he was playing snooker or something in the in the, the Manchester United clubhouse and had these steps running down the passageway and there were players or there were people coming with the news that there'd been a crash and that, so that was that's what the taxi driver test was you know today if you went to visit someone you'd be going to some huge great mansion in Cheshire for Manchester United supporters or uh, for uh, yeah. players or oh, sorry. You know, Surrey, uh, down around, in leafy Surrey, down around, uh, all, they live all down there, don't they, near the Chelsea trading ground in Cobham. Yep. So that's, uh, that was, I thought, was very indicative of um, the sort of person I was writing about. But you'd had experience writing about that era because uh, I remember when The Wizard came out, The Life of Stan yeah. Matthews in 2013. Yeah. I actually read, when Stan was alive, he brought out his memoir, and yeah. I remember taking it to a holiday in America, and I remember yeah. reading it mm. by a tennis court. Vividly, have a vivid memory of carrying it to a tennis court in. It was either Wyoming or um, yeah. San Diego. So I knew I knew the story of Stanley Matthews, the incredible athlete who was yeah. the first knight of English football because he was yeah. knighted before Alf Ramsey was. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was your was your memoir revisionist? Did you did you seek well, to change the view of Matthews? It was insofar as this that nobody had written a book about Stanley Matthews 
without Stanley Matthews looking over their shoulder. That biography that you're talking about, well, it was, it was, it was listed, billed as an autobiography, the way it was, was the name of the book you're referring to. And that was a, uh, that was a, um, a ghosted um, biography. There'd be no proper auto, uh, biography written by an outsider. So I, I wanted to write one that was tell, tell, tell people as it was sort of thing. And the family weren't, when I asked them the question, because a big point about Matthews's life is, is his, was his marriage. And he wasn't, he was a very unhappy man for a very long time. But when I tried to talk to his family about the relationship between uh, Matthews and um, his wife, uh, they all sort of said, oh, we don't talk about that. But so I sort of said, well, I'm going to write the book. So if you choose, I'll write it and you can tell me what happened or I'll find out from other people. And they said, well, they wouldn't talk about it. So can't I can't libel the dead. You can't libel the dead. But it wasn't so much wanting to libel the dead or anything like that. It was more wanting to tell... The same with Perry. I came across the same thing with Perry. When I read the Perry book, Perry had been married four times. His fourth wife was still alive. When I said, I'm going to write a book about your husband, a book your husband, she said, why are you going to do that? It's all been told. I said, well, it hasn't really been told, has it? And so I found out all about... And that's an important part of, of a sportsman's life. You don't just want these ghosted, ghosted autobiographies. You want somebody who will drill down and um, find out what, what sort of person they actually were, what the social conditions were at that time, how divorce was viewed, and etc., etc. So, in fact, Matthews himself and his second wife wrote a book about how they got together. But the thing that I did find out for that book, which I said, when you say it's revisionist, it's not so much revisionism as inserting new facts into yeah. the book, mm -hmm. was that I discovered that his second wife was a was um, you know an, an agent of the um, communist government. Oh yeah, I remember the yes, that was the big revelation. Now, and she, so there was there were some reviews of that book, and the one hacked me off completely was I think it was in the Times said, this is just another regurgitation of all, everything we knew in the past, which was complete bollocks. I hope you Because them. I had spent a huge amount of time unearthing new material. In, uh, uh, practically on every page or chapter, there's new material in there. So I, I didn't actually, it wasn't actually revisionism as so, as so much as getting the complete story because the, the complete story had, had never been told mm. because it was always had the Matthews editing what was going in it. Well, similarly, the, the football book of the year has already been announced. It's going to be the biography of Diego Maradona, written by Guillaume Balaguet. Whom, I know, I've come across him, yeah. Whom, whom I imagine yeah. has had his life made much easier, unfortunately, through the death of his subject, yeah, yeah. because yeah. he will now be allowed, unless there's a... There's yeah, an investigation into his death. Law may, may be more protective of the dead. I would, I would expect so, because he is like a <laughs> secular saint. So, although Stan has become a kind of football saint, although... Um... Well, you know, the point about Matthews is, I think, Matthews wasn't very popular in the dressing room. They all thought he... There's, there's plenty of evidence of that you can find. So the, the biographies and the, the, the autobiographies and the books have been written about 
make him into a saintly figure, but he wasn't actually particularly popular while he was a player. And mm. I can understand why he wasn't, because he had a sense of his worth, and anybody, anybody's entitled to a sense of their worth if it's a realistic sense of their worth. And um, Stanley Matthews' sense of his worth was a realistic one. So he, he was prepared to try and make money for, um, that he was with his due, and other players didn't really like that very much. He wasn't. He was the first out of the dressing room, you know, after a match. He uh, playing home at home. He'd be the first out of the. Didn't hang around for a drink with the rest of the lads, and all all that sort of stuff. So I suppose it is revisionistic insofar as I paint him as well. As not an unlikable man, but a, a sort of a lone wolf. Mm-hmm. Who uh, um, I've actually just written a film script called The Atomic Boys about this group of football supporters of Blackpool, and which uh, Matthews is a big part of that story. I try and get in there the in that script the fact that he was uh, you know an isolated uh, uh, lone wolf, as I say. But the, the thing about him is is that once he stopped playing, and I. Uh, Normally, people never change character. After about the age of six or something, your character's fixed. And you, but professional sportsmen, I think, do. And I think professional sportsmen can be very different people when they're actually playing the game from when they actually retire. And I think Matthews, he no longer had to prove anything when he retired. And he became a thoroughly... Well, he probably reverted to type of being a thoroughly decent, likable man. He didn't... He didn't need to try and um, gain money in what a lot of the fellow professionals thought was a, um, an unsuitable way. So I can think of, I mean, I think Ted Dexter was another person who, from another sport, cricket. I mean, cricket, he was a very sort of lofty person when he was playing cricket and not a great uh, mixer and communicator. But in later life, I have sat next to him a couple of times, absolutely charming. So I think there is this thing about professional sports where you can change character and playing professional sport does turn you in on yourself quite a lot. Well, there's one sporting hero who is in your book of sporting heroes, Best of British, who never yeah. changed. Um, because I've spoken to Barry Tomlinson, yeah. who was the executive agent of Roy Race. Because I'm, I'm trying to read the 92. I've already read Fulham, which is why we're not discussing <laughs> well, Fulham Roy so much. Roy of the Rovers. But Roy of the Rovers and... Um, I have chosen Melchester Rovers as my 92nd club because the club that was Wimbledon <laughs> FC, a lot of football fans don't like what they became when they were moved yeah. elsewhere. So it's it's delightful to read that it's actually put in the bump that Roy, as I well as you, Best and Edwards... I story behind that. When, when um, Yellow Jersey Press um, commissioned me to write that book, they said, look, you've got 100, you've got 100 players... The choice is entirely yours, who the 100 players are, except the guy who is um, a very nice guy who was in charge of Yellow Pages then called Tristan Jones. Tristan said to me, look, there's only one person I really want you to get in, and that's Roy of the Rovers. I don't mind <laughs> who else you choose. And I was happy with that because I, 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 I liked I liked the one or two other sort of slightly unlikely figures in there, like uh, uh, Robin Hood was my idea, for example, and at the yeah. start. Hmm? Yeah, very good with arrows. Yeah, well, he, that started uh, archery. I mean, every village had um, these archery uh, fields uh, in the uh, you know in the reign of Edward, whoever it was. So, and then there's Henry VIII in there yep. because he was a fantastic exactly. wrestler, 
uh, horseman, darts thrower, and also there's Byron in there because he was a uh, he was a he played in the first Eton Harrow football ma- cricket match. Not that that's much of a recommendation. He um, he was a f- phenomenal swimmer, of course. He swam the Hellespont and across the mouth of the Tigris in in Lisbon. And one or two other, and he boxed too, and he had a club foot. <laughs> I would love Byron and Stan Matthews to have a chat because I think they'd, <laughs> they'd rub each other the wrong <laughs> yeah. way within five minutes. Yeah, um, yeah. So, this book of Sporting Heroes is also in the football library, along with The Wizard, The Life of Stanley Matthews. And I'll chuck the book on Fred Perry in as well because uh, there needs to be. Uh, apparently, well, as, he, a, he, as I say, there was that. that was yes, because he played for Arsenal, yeah. Um, that you know that he took football training, although football training in those days was pretty primitive. He just ran up and down the stands and um, and jogged around the outside yeah, on, the, on the perimeter. Well, I learned from this book when footballers were skint that mm-hmm. the father of football training, unsurprisingly, had been a major in the British Army. Yeah, Frank, right. The figure of Frank Buckley looms over the pre-Eastman retain and transfer yeah. period. Uh, he was an amazing figure, really. Had you come across it? You knew about him before. Uh, yeah, I knew about him because he was with Stan Cullis at Wolves, or he pre- yeah, yeah, yeah. preceded Stan Cullis. Uh, yeah, Frank Buckley, as well as the um, the training, he invented scouting, and he was the chap who put numbers on the shirts. Yeah, yeah, he's an extraordinary man. Uh, although there is a, an essay to be written, this is the kind of essay you'd set uh, mm. at a football history degree. Frank Buckley, ahead of his time, or just another ruthless megalomaniac? Yeah. Same, that's the same title you could put to a thing about uh, a book about Trump. Mm. Politician or just another ruthless megalomaniac? Yeah, Putin, <laughs> Bolsonaro, Alex yeah, Ferguson. Yeah. Darlin, Margaret Thatcher. I mean... I mean um... <laughs> <laughs> Boris Johnson. Um, no <laughs> politics in the football library except football is now inherently political, as we know. Um, <laughs> the politics of Manchester United in the 1960s um, and you lived through this era. When mm. Matt Busby, who had survived a plane crash, won the European Cup with Man United as mm. manager, he decided to step upstairs. And the state of Manchester United had um, was very similar to what it was in 2013. Mm. Huge dynasty, not much succession planning. So who mm. had it worse, David Moyes or Frank O'Farrell? That's a tough one. I mean, I, I, I would... No, in fact, fact, I don't think it is a tough one. I think Frank O'Farrell had it worse. I think, um, I mean, let's face it, Moyes at least had... How how long was Moyes there? Ten months. How how long was Frank O'Farrell? How many matches did he have? He didn't have that many matches, did he, Frank O'Farrell? Oh, I I don't know. I know that his... his... I know know that he's an extraordinary man, Frank O'Farrell. He's still alive and uh, living in a lovely clifftop house in Torquay. Uh, well, they say lovely. I mean, it's 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 not like the sort of house of a Manchester United manager, ex-Manchester mm. United manager. Yeah, he's not living in Alex Ferguson's house. He's ninety-three years old, but yes, he is not yeah, living yeah, in the kind alive. of house. He's yeah. a lovely, lovely man in that very sort of with that very soft Southern Irish accent. Very, very nice. Adored his wife who died recently. I, I managed to. I managed to. Uh, I interested him in the fact that he could get a letter from the Queen if he, if they, when they'd been married for sixty years or seventy years, and um, I sent him all the details of that. Just a lovely man. But suddenly, you talk to him about Busby, and suddenly that all peels away, and he's just, 
it's just still seething well, about the way he was treated. And as, as I lay it out in the book, I mean, I tried to, I, I put in a balancing sentences in that, you know, this isn't, this isn't the general view of, of Busby. Um, but this was certainly a man who felt he was very harshly treated. And also Dawson, you'll see in the book, is also not particularly complimentary about the way uh, Busby handled uh, things. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I, he, I've, I've always thought he was a, a charming Scot. But um, and, and the, it's, a, it's a pity that the two people I spoke to, in a way it's a pity, the people that I spoke to had that view of them. Well, and you I did try to... Try to um, say, you know, this is this is just two people's opinions. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think the reader will know that you'll need more yeah. sources. And in fact, Paddy Barclay's book on Busby. I know, I know, Paddy. And, yeah. um, your immediate contemporary, Paddy Barclay. Is he, is he 1945 as well? I think, yeah, he's, he's certainly mid 70s yeah. and a yeah. good friend of Brian Glanville's. And we've had oh, Paddy yeah, well, on it, in pa- the library. Paddy is charm, charm personified. Paddy, you could charm Alex Salmond and. I think yeah. together again. <laughs> I think I'll send him a note. I think you need to. He needs to get back up there with some Dundonian uh, charm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He is a Dundonian, isn't he? He is. Um, the the O'Farrell story is that uh, Matt Busby came to him and said, "Why you don't drop Bobby Charlton? Don't drop him." But yeah, unfortunately, yeah. the dynasty needs to turn, and Alex Ferguson was very good at saying, "Right, Beckham, Stam, Robson, yeah. out you go." And Bobby Charlton, unfortunately, now after losing his brother. Um, mm. is another footballer, like the younger Gordon McQueen, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, to yeah. suffer from terrible, degenerative brain conditions, which unfortunately, we, we look, it looks like the next generation will they not be it. able to get Alzheimer's because there are cures coming well, in. I, I, but how, do you, how are you going to manage that? It's difficult. I mean, I think rugby's got a problem as yep. well, but Huge I problem. think there's a very simple answer to that, that, you know, the, the Thompson, the World Cup winning hooker, he's got... Uh, Start of early dementia, etc., etc. And a lot of there are a lot of there's all the um, motor neurons. There seem to be an un, un, unnecessary number of rugby players getting motor neurons disease. Yeah. I think what they've got to do is um, restrict the tackle to the waist and below, <coughs> and that to sort that out. But football, I don't think um, you know, heading the ball is such a intrinsic part of the game. I can't see what they can do. I mean, they can obviously say you can't head the ball in practice. That's that's fine. Um, but then that's only half the number of headers. And the real, you know, you really give the ball a biff in, in, in actual, uh, when the match is for real. Yeah, I mean, what are you going to do? Are you going to instruct crossing the ball? To, you have mm. to cross below. It'll be like hockey, uh, amateur level. You can't lift mm. the ball off the ground. Well, you can you could say that you you know you can lift the ball that that wouldn't matter, but you're not allowed to head it. Mm. Well, <laughs> then what do you do? Do you like overhead you kick it? Does it, does it become like beach football? Oh gosh! Uh, do an extravagant bicycle kick. Yeah, I'd love to see that. We, we've come a long way from the time of Fergie Souter. Uh, he he gets his own grey box for seven pages. This is yeah. Well, a... that's the point. I mean, this is a book about professionalism. Um, you know, the, the where professional football is. Suter gets it because the, I just wanted to... It's a, a sort of a, the book, as well as being, um, you know, the a, a story of when footballers were skinned, it's also the sort of a little bit of the history of professionalism. And I thought it was quite an interesting um, case uh, to look at. Who, who was the first professional? Where did this start? And he, he gave me a way of getting into wages and money being paid to footballers. 
So he was. That's why I gave him that um, tinted uh, section. That was my idea to do that. Yeah, it looks like a, a museum piece, which is what it is. <laughs> this book is. It's in the. I hope that when people come to the football library, they do search this book out. Charmed by uh, the cover with the Evertonian player. Is that Goodison Park with the floodlights? That's Goodison, Goodison Park. I love that. Look how crowded the terraces are. They're spilling over the front. Well, I've got the book here somewhere. <laughs> I did manage to get hold of a copy. Yeah. Well, I, I, I hear they're good. They're good. I, Price, I, by the I, way, at nine ninety nine from Pikeback. When that cover came out, I tried to get them to change it, but I now see what a good cover it is, because I wanted to get something to contra- something that contrasted the, you know, the skint footballer with the plutocratic footballer, and couldn't think of anything to. And then, then I, they said to me, "Look, we think this is a very good cover." And I said, "Yeah, actually, I think you're right." Very shrewd. Bite back, whose football books uh, at the back. They include uh, former library visitor Spencer Veen, uh, Vignes, whose book Bloody Southerners uh, is terrific. Uh, lots of football history. Bite back, one of the better, usually to do with politics. Uh, but uh, this this has gone with your book is on Bite Back rather than Yellow Jersey. And the well, book. Um, I know what you're saying there because Bite Back is is considered a. A political um, publisher, but they have got a sporting wing, and it, I think it's something to do with. There was a thing called Robson Books at one stage, wasn't there? Mm-hmm. You, do you remember that? Vaguely, v- vague, yeah, a Robson Books, and I think somehow there's a link between and Ro- Robson Books. I think were sort of subsumed into Biteback. That's why there's quite a there's quite there's been some there's been some very good um, book football books by, I'm just looking for one that um, the guy who was at Real Madrid, the manager who was at Real Madrid, uh, the the Jewish guy from Austria or, or Gutman. whatever his name was. David Bolchover's book, From Genocide yeah, to yeah, the Greatest the Comeback. One. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, 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 that was a, a bite-back book. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and there have been, there've been one or two others as well. And one of them is by you. So, I, yes, I encourage people to read when footballers were skint, you will learn about Gordon Milne, who um, seems to have joined Brian Clough and Dave Whelan in players whose uh, careers were cut short by injuries. Gordon still with us? Which Gordon? Milne. Yes, he is. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gordon is. Yeah, very nice, charming man. He had some lovely stuff to say about uh, Shankly and how Shankly operated. I imagine um, he was active the other week because Ian Sinjin passed away. Uh, yeah, yes, uh, he would. Yes, I mean he would have played with him. Yeah, mm. yeah. I mean he's a very nice man. He was one of the people who lived in a slightly posher house than the rest of them because he had quite a long uh, career in management, including I think he went to the Middle East where he probably picked up quite mm. a bit of money. There's. Um, to- I loved how you you slipped in the detail about Tony McNamara's new knees. He has two knee replacements. That's right. Yeah. Well, that came into the, a bit about how how sort of medieval um, medical treatment was in those days. Oh, but yes, of course, McNamara. Think about it. He he had his knees replaced later on. But there's that gruesome stuff earlier on when they. He had some sort of leg injury, and they put the plaster on his leg, but they put the sticky side against the skin. Ooh, and when they pulled the plaster off, all his skin came off, and he got cirrhosis, I think. Mm. Not, um, what's the, whatever the skin Yeah, uh, it's cirrhosis. And um, there were sort of all sorts of gruesome stories. I mean, I still wince when I think of Dave Whelan's 
broken leg and how he was treated after his broken leg. Uh, and then there was uh, the story of Frank, uh, Frank O'Farrell with his nosebleed. It's a truly, well, is it a different era when you have all this furore about concussion substitutes and Raul Jimenez has missed all of this season with his injury? It is still a dangerous sport, albeit... It is a dangerous sport, but luckily, luckily, the dangers are now being recognised yeah. and acted upon. There was far less knowledge, obviously, in those days, and there was far less, I suspect, sympathy for footballers who were injured than there is yeah. today. Oh, for, for, of course. One of the main and questions... And far more precious prod, um, products of, them, of the moment. A footballer. Yeah. So if you're paying a guy, um, if you're paying a guy three hundred k a week, you're going to look after his health, aren't you? He is. Yes. Um, the insurance. Get your money's worth. Insurance is more than twenty pounds a week. Yeah. Well, we get another one of those. Mm-hmm. In my book, one of the things I looked at was when modern football started, and modern I football. modern football, and I would go yeah. back to nineteen sixty one, and which is okay. we're spending sixty weeks, sixty years, uh, more or less, to the day. Uh, and it was George Easton who wanted to move, and yeah. he went on strike for seven months uh, because he was owned, his registration was owned by Newcastle, yeah, that's right. and Newcastle retained it, wouldn't let yeah. him transfer, went to the yeah. High Court, and of all people, who was the justice? What was the surname of the justice? Wilberforce. Unbelievable. Wilberforce, the man who, who campaigned for the, the slavery... Because that, the, the one that George Easter, it was name, known as the slavery law that kept him at Newcastle, even though he was out of contract. Wilberforce, William Wilberforce, who had been the great anti-slavery um, yeah. campaigner in the 19th, 18th century. And one of the people who used the abolition of retain and transfer is the aforementioned Stan Matthews, who at 46, he got fed up with being told what to do at Blackpool, so he went back to Stoke. Is that right? That's right. These stories of the era in the 1960s when football became... There were lots of people going to see the the football matches and people on the terraces would pay their wages and that would be shared equitably between home and away. Yeah. But it was um, Tommy Trinder who got his accountant in... Well, his accountant must have been very angry when uh, the maximum wage was abolished and yep. he told the accountant, right, I've got to stick to my word. I've got to pay this Johnny Haynes 100 quid yeah, a week. 100 quid. Was he yeah. worth 100? Apparently he was worth 100 quid a week. Well, yeah, I'm a Fulham supporter. So I, I, I agree with you that 61 was, was, was a, 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 change, a changing moment of the game, a sort of tipping point. Although it wasn't as if wages roared away. And as I make the point at the back of the book, was abolishing the maximum wage wasn't seen then as earning as much money as he bloody well could. It was seen then as getting a decent wage for the, pl- for the players, uh, uh, appropriate to, to what they, the entertainment they provided, etc. It's only since television became involved in a big way, i.e. in 1992 with the Sky contract, but it seems to be that now it's no longer a question of having a decent wage appropriate to what you're what you're doing it seems to be to get as much bloody money as you possibly can regardless of how it might impinge on the punters who come to watch you mm. because it has impinged on the punters because you know the, the, the money you have to pay now I, I occasionally in Chelsea just across the river from me here and uh, I say to Chelsea fans look I quite like going to see that match 
and he gives me some sort of outrageous bloody figure that I'd have to pay to um, to go and watch it. I mean, I, of course, I, I could afford it, but it just seems to me that, because I'm in a privileged position, but it seems to me that the whole... I mean, I think uh, our friend at Manchester United, when he talked about the prawn sandwich brigade, he was hitting a nail on the head. Well, you will be delighted to know that the security guard on the football library is the self-same Roy Keane. I think if you, <laughs> Roy Keane will be the chap who stops people coming in if he yeah. doesn't like the look of them. But both his books are in the football library. Um, and his, his season has been very funny because he's formed a double act with Micah Richards uh, on yeah, yeah, Sky yeah. TV. But I think it's a combination of the Sky money and the Bosman ruling which came in. Yeah, and yeah, in fact, yeah. Fulham were one of the clubs that benefited from Bosman because all this foreign talent came in, helped by the money of Mr. Al Fayed. Mm. Um, and latterly Shad Khan. Uh, mm. And Fulham are at the moment a Premier League team. I think Scott Parker, th- look at the calibre of manager he's worked under Scott Parker and tell me mm. that he can't manage Tottenham, Chelsea, two of the clubs no, no, he played I'm, for. I'm impressed by Parker because what he's done this season from that dread, if we hadn't had that dreadful start, we'd probably be up nudging a, at the top half of the table. Yeah, and we're talking, uh, who would, is it Fulham playing tonight against Newcastle? Is that the game? Uh, Are they playing tomorrow? This weekend. Oh, OK. It's a write-off. Well, it's possible that Who Fulham can beat Manchester City at home. Possible. Oh, yeah, we're giving a good thing to you. I do think that, you know, I, I reckon that in my lifetime, and 76, we haven't had, apart from probably Bobby Moore and Bobby Charlton, we haven't had one of these stellar footballs of the world stage. We haven't really. We had lots of very, very good, very good players, but we haven't had one of the stellar players. And I think this Foden could become one. Yeah. The sort of first top-ranking player we've had since the, since the you know since '66. And that is because he has been training with some of the best players in his position. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's probably world. right. It's probably helped. You're probably right. It's probably helped him a huge amount. And I think uh, uh, Guardiola is obviously yeah. an exceptional man-manager. But yes, I will hold you to that. Because you're right. I mean, Kane, very good at his job. Um, yeah. But is not... Is he one of the world's best strikers? Well, that, 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 yes, I've, uh, Kane just amazes me because uh, there's so much about Kane that, uh, that says third division... No. <laughs> well, he also looks then, like he's been <laughs> unfrozen. He's the kind of player who could have played when footballers were skint. He's got the haircut yeah. and the... Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is he keeps sticking it in the onion back. He's very good at his job. You can't argue with that, can you? No, and, uh, well, Qatar is a write-off, but maybe 2024, the Euro yeah. 2024, is probably yeah. more likely for Foden yeah. and Grealish. And we just need a yeah. goalkeeper. We need a really, really good goalkeeper. Yeah, we do, yeah. That was Jimmy Hill's great thing. He said, when we were asked about uh, what's the most important player, he said a goalkeeper, and he's the second most, his deputy. Yes, and Liverpool Mm. won all those titles in the 1970s and 80s because they got a goalkeeper. A flying pig. Yes. Tommy Lawrence. Tommy Lawrence, yeah. And there was that lovely interview, did you see it? I'm sure you did. Yes. Well, he said, did you know Tommy Lawrence? <laughs> Tommy Lawrence. <laughs> that is well. That kind of story is um, imitated here. There's a really good moment when ex Watford, ex Chelsea Johnny Payton 
goes yeah. back to Stamford Bridge and basically does come on Let's Be Avenue. Yeah, and gets right. that, that... At 90s, passed away now. But he has, yeah. What a, what yeah. a great character he seemed. And also... He was a great character. And I tell you, my agent actually put me on to that because that evening when he, he went out and gave everybody a, a talking to, my, my agent was there and he rang me up the next day and said, you've got to get this guy Jolly Payton in the book. Absolute charmer he was. Wicked. I love that story of him bumping into the Chelsea, how he came to play it. Chelsea. He bumped into the Chelsea captain, Johnny Harris, in the street. <laughs> mm. And there's, yes, it, there's, there is that camaraderie, to go back to that word, that I learned mm. from Kenny Dalglish's book. But you start with what I hope does become a script of sorts. I know you've written about fans in the 40s and 50s, but you, you start with football as a road movie because it's um, players so coming from travel. Wales and Ireland and Scotland mm. by rail uh, to England, and it was it's the fish-out-of-water story, a stranger comes to town. Uh, and I mean, this... Yes, I mean, it, travel, the travel, the railway system, it, it, it opened up football, it opened up the possibility of moving lots of people around the country to uh, watch football, teams to travel the length and breadth of the country to play each other, so it became more than just a local county sport or a... And it, it, it opened it up, and it struck me that, that right at the heart of, uh, of the early years of football was the travel. Yeah, much and, like, much um, like the music Suter industry. Coming, Suter probably would never have come down from Scotland if there hadn't been a train to get him down to play at Darwin in um, Lancashire. Well, that was where the, the glory players were, the Scottish players. Mm. Oh, helped yeah. Preston win everything in the late 1880s, which really does seem yeah. like... Black and white football. Just to mention some of the other characters in the book, and the, the dramatis personae yeah. uh, includes George Eastham, Dave Whelan, um, Terry Neal, whose memoir written in the 80s was very interesting, talking about yeah. his footsteps to becoming a manager. Uh, Peter yeah. McParland, who was the chap who did something oh, yeah. in the 1957 he's, 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 he's a good guy, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, he's, still, he's still going strong. Lost, I spoke to him about 18 months, a year ago, I think. Oh, fab. Um, but the one that impresses me is um, someone who died two years ago, just short of his century. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Colin Collindridge. Colin Collindridge, who began playing football before the Second World War. He was a yeah. guest in the 1940s, moved from Sheffield United to Nottingham Forest to Coventry. And he is an example of one of the colliery boys. Yeah. People who, yeah. and, and you forget, very easy to forget that in the pre-elite days... Becoming yeah. a pro footballer was a chance to use your strength that you would yeah. be using to hack coal yeah. uh, in the collieries, and because yeah, they... the collieries played a played an extraordinary part in in that period between the sort of nineteen twenties and the early nineteen fifties, they produced a huge number because the collieries always had football teams and of good young, strong, fit men, and they provided any number of uh, uh, the other the other nice chap from that is the guy from Farnsworth in, what's his name, um, Carrie loved cutting bricks up ladders and things, um, the full back for Bolton. Oh, Tommy Banks, the one club Tommy man. Banks, yeah. what a lovely man he was, and well, he, he, loved, he loved it down the coal mines, and he loved hodding bricks up <laughs> even <laughs> when he was into his late 60s, up ladders and things. Oh, and he's got, there's a picture of him uh, in the photo plates, uh, yes, farm boy. Tommy Banks mm. supplemented his meagre football wages by working on a farm in Farnworth. 
Mm. Um, That's right. Gosh, that, yeah, he looks like a footballer. He looks like a footballer <laughs> from the 50s, but also could yeah. well be like an OR farming hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. The, the he, other got one, that, he got all that money from the Gillette ad. Uh, yes, he looks like someone who could follow Dennis yeah. Compton into into that kind of line of work. Well, of course, I, I'd actually draw a comparison because um, Beckham did a Gillette ad and, and worked out what the difference in, in money that Beckham got was what Tommy Banks got for a Gillette ad. Something yes. like a, a multiple of over a, several thousand, I think. Goodness me. Another reason as to why football has changed. Um, yeah. The the best eleven you kind of draw a composite eleven of the pre retain and transfer era, um, in a two three five. Gordon Banks yeah. is obviously in goal. Uh, yeah. Wally Barnes of Arsenal. Bill Levers or Levers. 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 He was a good man. He played for Manchester City. Nice man. He's still alive. I think I went down to see him in Cornwall. That uh, team I picked. I think it was basically um, players I'd actually appeared in the book was it or I forget what it was but then no I was it was a difficult book and I had to leave out some um I hope I had Greaves in because I uh, Greaves is did Greaves I had uh, you Greaves you in. you put him at eight next to Matthews yeah 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 he Tom, was a phenomenal player Finney unfortunately 11. he was he was starting to lose it I think when I, I wrote the book so it wasn't easy to to interview him. I mean, the person I really wanted to interview was uh, Jimmy Hill, but um, unfortunately, he was his dementia had uh, kicked in by the time because I knew him reasonably well. And he was, of course, uh, one of the leading lights behind the end of um, the maximum wage. An amazing, and I hope someone writes a biography of him. He wrote a memoir, which is <laughs> Jimmy Hill's book of anecdotes. Yeah, and um, his, his wife, actually, who I know quite well, who came to the book launch, she she wrote a book called oh, Gentleman Jim. Yes, 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 yeah, you're right. Mm. And I shouldn't have. Very that. nice lady. Yes, the widow, uh, his widow. Uh, halfbacks, Danny Blanchflower, obviously, John Charles, obviously, Duncan Edwards, obviously. Now, yeah. those are three players who ruled the world. Yeah, yeah, John, yes, yes, yeah, well, Duncan Edwards... I mean, I mean, he would have survived that with modern medicine. He would have survived that uh, crash, but uh, so sad. You do wonder: Would Real Madrid have won all of those Champions League, Champions Cups in the yeah. early days had um, Manchester United not uh, perished? Yeah, well, yeah, that's a good, it's a good point to speculate upon. Yeah, but counterfactuals only take you so far. Ditto Brian Clough, whom you pick as the. Um, the chap who tore through the second division, then of course, was it his second or third game in the first division? Yeah, he did his leg. His knee. Or did his knee? Uh, but the one that I'm particularly keen to talk about uh, to finish yeah. this chat about when footballers were skinned, a journey yeah. in search of the soul of football, is a player that Derby and Sheffield United fans know, but I do not. Jimmy Hagen is a completely new name to me. Why should um, I care about him? Well. Jimmy Hagen, of course, when I wrote the book, he was no longer with us. But I, there were so many... I mean, for a start, Colin Collindridge, um, uh, who we mentioned, he couldn't speak too highly of Jimmy Hagen. And he, he actually gave me the book about Jimmy Hagen. And just reading between the lines and talking to other people, this person that Colin Collindridge had been just waxing lyrical about, it struck me he was the outstanding player who hadn't hasn't really um, entered the consciousness of uh, you know people who look back on um, the great footballers of that era. 
Well, I think people who, who do know the, the history of the football of that area would say Jimmy Hagan was one of the great players. I, I only have really the um, say-so of um, Colin Collindridge and, and what I read from other sources, that he well, was an exceptional player. He kept out players like Raish Carter, and um, who was, who was uh, by all accounts, was... Um, you know, and there were lots of good centre forwards around that time, weren't there? Yeah. Like Tom, Tommy Lawton, and um, it's one of those things: picking an eleven. People like you to pick it so that they complain about it, don't they? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> How could you pick him and not him? Well, that's the ultimate game. The eleventh chapter yeah. of my book is: yeah. who are you yeah, going to yeah. tell? Who are you going to tell you can't play because we can only pick one number seven? Yeah. I had to put Johan yeah. Cruyff at left back. That's the only <laughs> way I could fit him in. Um, Roy Wood. Well, you had Garincha in there, did you? Uh, I had John Barnes as a personal pick. Oh, did you? You're allowed uh, one personal Watford, pick. The Watford bias coming out here. Correct, <laughs> correct. Um, Nothing uh, wrong the, with that. The last thing I wanted to say was um, there is a, there are six different elements to the then and now, ancient and modern. There's the health, yes. the kit, the style of play, the attitude, the game itself yep. and the wages. Um, Roy Wood said, I'm not going to blame the players. I blame the people with money for spoiling the game. It'll all blow up in time. Is it going to blow up tomorrow, next year, or after the European Super League comes in in a few years? When is it going to destruct? Well, uh, that that is a a very difficult question. I mean, a lot of people have been predicting it would have blown up by now. And what do you mean? What do I mean? What does he mean exactly by blow up? I mean, I think the fact of the matter is that football is going to go on and on and on and on and on and on, and um, and I think the, the fa- I, I think that before it blows up, they'll have to take uh, measures to stop it blowing up. But that's that's how things evolve, you know. Some things the, the the lid is about to be blown off, and so you turn the gas down. So I don't, I don't think it will blow up in the sense that it'll blow the game to smithereens and it'll no longer exist but it will get to the point of blowing up well they'll have to start taking measures and i i think they you know they they might have to introduce the american the salary cap the salary the cap will they have to go cap. back to a salary cap or something like that i don't know i don't know but i it, 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 it's all it's always on these things particularly it's such a it's such a high price sport now that it's always going to be on the brink of blowing up football and they'll just have to manage it so it doesn't blow up because there will always be a market for player, people to gather to watch the best footballers in the world playing football. That'll always go on. Yeah, well, but you can't have Messi costing like £34 million a yeah, year, but yeah. that is the story that'll run and run. Uh, yeah. I think every professional footballer, including Phil Foden, should read When Footballers Were Skint, A Journey in Search of the Soul of Football by John Henderson, uh, whose film script... It will also uh, reach the football library. Uh, can you just quickly um, make a case for your film because you're looking for funding or for a producer? Well, I'm looking for I'm looking for a film, someone to produce the film. Well, it's supposed to be it's supposed to be an English comedy um, on on the same sort of uh, line, say, of uh, the, the Full Monty, Calendar Girls, uh, Military Wives, because it was a very these group of football supporters of Blackpool. Um, Blackpool, called the Atomic Boys, were uh, were, a, were a true comic band. They they band of brothers. They marched around in all sorts of uh, weird outfits. Uh, Sid Beavers, who led them, we used to wear a cape and a turban and and 
baggy trousers and carry a duck under his arm. So there's a comic element to it. But they they had a serious mission. They called themselves the atomic bombs. They wanted to try and do something for post-war Britain to lighten the mood um, of darkness that uh, fell over the country after the war or continued after the war. And I think they 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 played a part in making um, people enjoy life again. So I, I, I'm and it, and of course the the Atomic Boys' uh, existence ran in parallel, really, with Stanley Matthews' at, uh, career at Blackpool after the war, and ends with the glorious victory at uh, in 1953 in, in arguably the greatest cup final ever at which Stanley Matthews starred, but so did the Atomic Boys, and so did, the, in fact, the duck actually got on the pitch. Really? Having been told that they weren't allowed to bring the duck to the ground, they insisted on doing it. Before the cup final, they'd taken the duck down to number uh, 10 Downing Street, and, um, and Sid Beavers had been admitted to n- number 10, where unfortunately for him was Churchill wasn't in, but in my film script, Churchill is in. Ah, and um, it's a, just a, a thoroughly, um, it's a, a pure comedy. And um, it was a joy to write, and I really do find, hope I can find someone to uh, make it. Yes, producers, please inquire at Hendo John. Hendo John, that's J-O-N, on Twitter. I shall let you go to the dentist, John. Have a wonderful weekend. <laughs> I hope Fulham keep the goal difference down. And uh, when footballers were skinned, is on the shelves of the Football Library. Thank you so, so we, much. We've got a fantastic new sta- stand at Fulham, too. Oh, of course, yes. Who's it going to be named after? I don't know. Just like the library! Just like-